Hello there, it's Max Lamana. You know, right now we're living in an uncertain world. Just look at the last 12 months, at the climate events we've been through this year, record-breaking heat waves, huge storms, and of course, world-changing global events, most notably the invasion of Ukraine, that have made us all a lot more aware of where our energy comes from. And looking ahead, winter is coming. What challenges is this winter going to bring? We just kind of assume that electricity is always there when we need it. I know I do. But think of the infrastructure, the complexity. In our previous episode, we discovered all the factors involved in getting that supply to us. When you add to that, the weather, global events, and changing politics, it makes you think, what actually goes into making sure we have a secure energy supply? That's what this episode is all about. And the fact is, making sure we maintain a secure supply of energy against a constantly evolving set of challenges isn't a last-minute scramble. People around the world are working to make our energy systems even more resilient, working to adapt them to potential threats. So we're going to take a look at the infrastructure and projects protecting our supplies, finding new and innovative ways to keep electricity flowing in the face of known challenges and new ones. We'll talk to people preparing for once-in-a-lifetime storms or guarding against cyber attacks. We'll also meet businesses doing it for themselves, powering their own projects, protecting their own clean energy future. We're going to get up close to some incredible technology. Are you ready? This is the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. We know resilience is important in our lives. We face all sorts of challenges, things we have to resist or bounce back from. And our electricity infrastructure is no different. But when I think about all the challenges our networks face, I find it hard to take in. To discuss these challenges, I'm joined by Dan Stevens, who is National Grid's Group Vice President for Resilience and Crisis Management. How are things? Where are you? Where are you calling in from? And thanks for joining the show. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. I uh, love this topic, really passionate about it. To answer your question, I am at home right now, which is uh, a little bit outside of New York City. It's where my base office is. Um, but my role, it's global in nature. I have um, teams both in the U.S. and the U.K. as well. I look at your job title, you know, Resilience and Crisis Management, and my my heart is like the pulse is pumping right now. It's getting faster and faster. <laughs> Do you enjoy being in this sort of like this pressure, these stressful moments? It's taken me a while to realize that I'm an adrenaline junkie and I thrive in those moments. <laughs> I really love solving hard things that don't have kind of that clear path of, oh, here's what we need to do. I've got a plan for that, A, B, C, D. I mean, that's great, but I, I like kind of figuring things out. I mean, it's not like we're flying by the seat of our pants. Like we, we do have plans and procedures. We have training to fall back to. We're always kind of working towards a common set of objectives or vision. Um, and at the core of that, certainly in the crisis itself, is, is around public safety, the safety of employees and the workforce, and then really just genuinely doing what's right, doing good. Uh, from an emergency management perspective, that's providing the right resources to local communities, helping them rebuild. From an energy sector, obviously, we're looking at restoring critical services. And, you know, for you and I, we kind of think of that as our own residential home. But in reality, it's pretty complex because you've also got other critical need customers and hospitals, other infrastructure like dams and water, wastewater treatment. So, of course, it's great to have sort of your, your core objectives of what you're trying to do, but you really do need to work collectively across a pretty robust team of experts on understanding what those priorities need to be at any given moment. So earlier, I mentioned resilience. Why is it important to have resilience in our, in our energy networks? Can you give some examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are so much more interconnected now today than we were just a short time ago. So when we lose power or energy, it's not just an inconvenience. You know, we hear our grandparents say like, oh, we lost power all the time. But it's really a matter of, of growth, the economy. You have a lot more people working from home, so they're dependent on it for their jobs. 
we are completely interconnected and dependent on our energy systems. So the idea of being resilient is that the capacity, the ability and the need to kind of anticipate and prepare for any type of disruption, which could be both kind of this short term, we have a crisis, there's uh, a, a, you know some kind of sub substation issue and we've lost you know, 100,000 customers, you have to be able to respond and recover from that quickly. But resilience is also recognizing that the whole industry is changing. So how do you adapt over time? How do you make sure that we're able to meet our net zero goals and going into more renewable and growth areas, which are new for the industry, while reducing emissions and seeing a growth in electricity demand altogether with growth of EVs, electrification of our homes. So how do you go through that while also mitigating those shorter term crisis events. That, that in my mind is kind of what resilience means and it's holistic in nature. It's not just the operational engineering aspects of the grid, but it's how do you ensure you have the right talent and people and the capacity from a development perspective of the skills needed to work on those systems. How do you make sure you have the right IT infrastructure in place to manage those systems? So there's so many complexities about it. The impact of losing supply, these hospitals and, the, and banks losing energy, the impact of losing that supply is even greater than it was in the past, would you say? Absolutely. I think the impact is far greater because of that interconnectedness. Um, you know, like silly examples, like flushing the toilet. Like, yeah, that might be gravity fed, but there's wastewater treatment facilities. Can, can you imagine how long can a wastewater treatment facility last without power? Not very long. Transportation systems, you know, when you have large scale outages at a major port in Los Angeles or New Orleans, the ability to offload container ships, that can have huge economic and GDP implications and supply chain issues that cascade for for, you know, across industry and for weeks or months at a time. So, yeah, it's an inconvenience at a residential level, but at an industry level and commercial level, you know, it, the impacts are just um, sometimes broader than we can even can imagine. When you look at the main threats of energy supply, what are your top three? All right, here's my, here's my thought. You know, it's pretty easy to rattle off things like climate change, cybersecurity. Of course, of course, those are those are up there. But I, I want to also reflect, you know, I entered this field shortly after 9-11. And, you know, if you were to ask me on September 10th of 2001, you know, hey, is someone going to take a commercial airline and use that as a missile? No, I thought you were crazy. Like, of course not. And, you know, if even just a couple months ago, if you, you think about the war in Ukraine, would would you have imagined Russia kind of weaponizing our entire energy system to create this level of global instability? And I bring those up to say, I genuinely think it's our own inability to be creative when thinking about the types of threats and risks. We kind of gravitate towards the things that we know and we see in the media, we hear about all the time, but the core capability of being creative, both in thinking through the, the planning for these types of things and how you would act, who you would need to work with, what are the right roles and uh, responsibilities of government, of industry, of public sector, et cetera, et cetera. Our own inability to be creative, I think, is our own kind of threat. But that was not the answer you're looking for. So I will say cyber, cyber security is a huge issue as we have a lot more technology embedded on the grid, certainly climate change. And then the other one that kind of comes to mind to me is really our own IT systems and networks. And that's not to say we don't have phenomenal IT organizations, both at National Grid and really just across industry, working to enable the energy transition. But the way in which we've moved forward is so exponentially faster than the rate at which, in some cases, we can really keep pace with it from an IT capability perspective. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, the IT department was there to, to you know, unlock your workstation if you were lucky enough to have one. And, and now we're asking them to set up data centers to manage offshore wind, uh, you know, SCADA data, like information that's coming in from our offshore wind. And how do you adjust to that and keep pace with the amount of needs from an IT organization? So I think that that's to me is not necessarily a threat per se, but it's it's a, a risk in terms of how do we have the right skill sets and the technology to enable all of the things that we're doing.
what's next? How does National Grid as a business make sure it's ready for all the challenges ahead? You must be thinking about the future. We need to build on the successes that we've had. I think we need to recognize that degree of interconnectedness across critical infrastructure. So between uh, not just gas and electricity, but also telecommunications and water and, you know, working with the communities to help ensure that the decisions we're making today will enable a more uh, resilient infrastructure for tomorrow. Um, that sounds nice. What that means in practice, though, is looking at a lot of the different climate scenarios from extreme heat to inland flooding and different types of storms, both in the UK and the US, and understanding what are the impacts of those severe weather events on our systems, on our different types of assets, and how do we start to invest in enabling resilience on those infrastructure assets today to mitigate the risks of future climate scenarios so that we can remain um, a reliable, safe, kind of clean energy provider for our customers. But I got to tell you, like, I, I have just an enormous, enormous degree of confidence in not just what National Grid is doing, but our industry. I mean, the level of passion that that people have, even down to the crews working in the field, doing power restoration, doing work, like they are just unsung heroes, like first responders. They're so committed to restoring power and recognizing the significance of the role that they have in the communities that we serve. Yes, we will have disruptions. We will have disasters. You can't avoid that. There will be large hurricanes and wildfires and floods. And that's unfortunate. We can't stop those things from happening. But I do have a lot of confidence in our ability in local level government's ability to respond and recover from these types of events. But when looking ahead in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to be using more electricity. I just know it. Is the grid ready for all that increase of electricity flow? I, I don't think the grid is ready for it today, but I do think there are enormous investments investments going in into our infrastructure every single day that are, are getting us there and are on pace or ahead of schedule relative to that transition. I, you know, I think of investments like, you know, National Grid just announced this uh, partnership with a company called Veer, which is developing this kind of new kind of power line that can carry five to 10 times more electricity in the existing line itself by using this. And like, forgive me, I'm not an engineer, but it's like this super cooling process that involves um, liquid nitrogen. Like those are the types of innovative things that we're looking to do and are doing to enable that transition. Now that partnership was just recently announced. It's not like we can just snap our fingers and, and transition the whole grid to, to that type of um, asset. But those are the things we're doing. And on a large scale, you know, that's just one example. So I do think we will be ready and keeping at pace with the uh, growth and demand. And ultimately, you know, the, the value of that to the end customer, the consumer, is that once you decarbonize and you start using more renewable energy sources, that's a free commodity. I mean, wind is free. Solar is free. So yeah, it requires a lot of investment, but the overall cost of electricity and generating that electricity drops dramatically over time. So, you know, I think it's kind of a, a short-term pain for a longer-term gain in making that transition. That was Dan Stevens, National Grid's Group Vice President for Resilience and Crisis Management. It's reassuring to hear all the work going into securing and protecting our energy supply. And it's also great to see so many companies taking things into their own hands by powering their own businesses with clean energy. By sourcing their own clean energy, it helps them to be more efficient and keeps costs down, which helps to contribute to our overall resilience. There are some amazing projects out there. We're going on the road to see one of them at Mager in South Wales. I'm Melvin Rickaby, one of the producers of the Clean Energy Revolution podcast. It's a pretty breezy day here. Actually, this is a perfect place to demonstrate the potential for wind energy. The UK government's planning to bring 50 gigawatts of offshore wind power to our grid by 2030 which is pretty exciting for our long-term green energy picture. And if I turn and look inland, towering above me is an absolutely colossal wind turbine. The Committee on Climate Change, the advisors to the UK government, see the potential for up to 96 gigawatts of onshore wind, 
which is a huge amount, more than enough to power all the homes in the country. And I'm here at Budweiser Brewing Group's Mega Brewery to meet people tapping into that potential, making their business cleaner, greener and more sustainable. So as these turbine blades spin slowly over my head, let's head into the brewery to find out more. We produce the three global brands here in Mega, um, which is Corona, Stellar and Budweiser. How much beer is coming out of here? Just over one billion pints per year. A billion pints per year? One billion. So my name's Tom Brewer, I work for AB InBev. Um, I'm part of the global department, but I'm here today at Magal Brewery. I'm Lloyd Manchip, I'm the plant manager here at Mega Brewery. Let's talk about what a difference that makes to supplying energy into here. It's a three and a half megawatt wind turbine. It's the biggest wind turbine on land in the UK. To the tip, I believe it's 86 meters, and each blade is 68 meters in length. The site uses around about five megawatts of power, so when the wind's blowing, it's about two thirds of the power for the site. So where does the remainder of your energy come in from? From a solar farm via the national grid. But occasionally it's not windy or sunny and, uh, and that's why you need a national grid and that's why you need energy storage. So what we're looking at out here is obviously a kind of signature piece of reducing fossil fuel, but how does this go towards your other sustainability targets? So we've said as a company that we will be net zero across our supply chain um, by 2040. So anything that goes into making beer, including the, the raw materials, the, the process, the transport, every, even down to the consumption of it, will be net zero by 2040. Um, for the UK, we've said that we will be a net zero operations by 2026. But the electricity is only about a quarter of our overall energy. The other, the other energy we use is heat. So reduce your energy consumption. That is the easiest, most sensible, most economical way to be sustainable. And that's where we're putting most of our effort. So as we look around this site, this brewery, we're gonna see some of the projects you've got underway to do just that. We will indeed. So we're um, on the north edge of the brewery. We've got the boiler house just to my right. And we're um, surveying this from a, a tube, a, link, a suspended yeah. tube. We're in a tube, we're in a link, we're link bridge. We've got windows on both sides of us. We can see 100-year-old oak trees on our left, water tanks on our right. But what we've got is a boiler house, which is actually a very efficient boiler house to heat the brewing process, to warm things up, to, to, to sterilise. So what kind of energy consumption are we looking at overall? It's a 170 gigawatt hours of, of heat a year. That's around about 15,000 homes worth of heat and about 20,000 homes worth of electricity. What we're looking at here is the, is the boiler of the brewery. So this is a bit like your big hot water tanks, those little silver tanks, that's your hot water cylinder that you'd have when full you, of hot water. When you say little? About 65, 70 foot tall, it's holding a lot of hot water. And those, those tanks there are about 92 degrees Celsius. And that's captured heat, heat that we've captured from another part of the process. We've recovered that heat. We're able to then use that energy again for another part of the process, uh, reduce our gas bill accordingly. So with the installation of this heat recovery system, how has that changed the overall energy picture of this site? So those tanks and the heat exchanger, which we'll look at in a minute, that's something like 6% of the thermal energy on site. With any sustainability journey, it's never about one thing. You've got to do typically about 100 projects. So this is where the magic happens. This is uh, where we all boil the beer to get some of the chemical reactions happening that we liked, the flavours that we like. There are some tastes in beer, sulfurous tastes, eggy tastes, that we, we don't associate with beer, we don't like the taste of in, in beer. We traditionally will boil the beer to get those flavours removed. Now, we've got a, a technology we, we've installed in this vessel, which is um, that we're still in the process of trialling. We're blowing bubbles through the, the kettle uh, of inert gas instead of boiling. We use um, a factor of 10 times less energy in the boiling process as a result. And does this make a difference? Yeah, this makes a lot of difference. You know, it's like shutting your windows or shutting your front door or insulating your house, but on a large scale. One thing I've noticed when we walk across these uh, bridges and walkways, you are working in one of the nicest parts of the country because you can see the hills, got green fields around, dry stone walls. 
and not far away the Bristol Channel you are surrounded by fantastic countryside and fantastic natural energy resources. When the Severn Tunnel was um, dug underneath the underneath the estuary um, to enable train tra- travel between Wales and England um, they hit a natural spring and that natural spring creates 50 million pints of water every day and that's one of the main reasons that the brewery is here and what that does is raw water comes into the brewery from the Severn Spring at around 20 degrees. What we then get is by putting the overflow of hot water back is the raw water we actually heat it up to say 22 we gain sort of two degrees on the base which then means we save the water but we also need less heat to heat that up to 80 90 degrees for our brewing processes so that's just one of many water saving initiatives across the brewery so we're inside the fermentation cellar and we've got the cones the bottom 10 foot 15 foot of the fermenter sticking through above us above our heads it looks quite futuristic and if you watch an old Doctor Who episode, it was filmed actually in their fermentation building as well. We had Billy Piper here many years ago. A lot of stainless steel, a lot of red lights, which are the valves, positions opened or closed. Let's talk energy use in here then, what's being used and how have you looked to make changes here? We're trying to keep the, the beer at a steady, constant temperature. We're trying to cool it and that's using electricity. This is our biggest use of electricity on the site. It's about a third of our electricity. The team here have been working very hard on that um, recently particularly and made some huge improvements. So I say it's a third of the electricity used on site. You, you make a 5% difference to that, you make a sizable difference to the total electricity consumption on your site overall. So fermentation creates naturally, it creates CO2. And one key point for us is that we produce CO2 here and we also need CO2 in the packaging process. So what we actually do is we have a recovery system. All of these vessels are linked into our CO2 recovery system that recovers around 50 tonne of CO2 every day. And then we send that or distribute that CO2 back to our packaging line so that we use it in the final product to carbonate the beer first infiltration and then to keep pressure on our vessels in bright beer and also to make sure that we have full pressure in our filling process to ensure that no oxygen gets into the product because oxygen in beer is the killer, it's the taste spoiler and we need to avoid oxygen as much as possible. One of the big things for any nationwide or global business is getting the stuff to where it needs to be, is transport, which is a big energy user normally. Here it's about 25% of the total um, carbon footprint. At the moment we've got a programme of work with um, where we're using HVO, hydrogenated vegetable oil, waste oil, not uh, virgin oil. So this is waste oil from another process that's left over that we then hydrogenate to turn into a, a diesel displacement. And that makes a significant difference to the reduction of carbon emissions from our transport. And 50% of the dedicated fleet are already converted to, to HVO. HVO works really well, but it can't work for all our vehicles. There's not enough waste HVO um, out there to be able to do that efficiently. So the ultimate solution is electrification. So all of our vehicles will be electrified. They'll, they'll either be battery electric or they'll be fuel cell electric. And we're able to take the electrical energy when it's windy and when it's sunny and convert that into a, to break open a water molecule. We, we're going to use wastewater from our brewing facility. We've got a lot of water here as part of the brewing process. The, the wastewater we treat and then discharge to the ocean, we can use that water to break it apart as part of the electrolysis process and form a hydrogen molecule that we can then use as an energy store. So we can use that in the fuel cell to generate electricity in the truck as the truck's driving along or in the brewery to power the brewery. But also we plan to use that hydrogen for the logistics side to power and heat the brewery through the boilers to power the boilers but also then finally to use on our dedicated forklift trucks as well so all of our forklift trucks on site will also be hydrogen powered to enable um, the full 360. Do you think that people appreciate the efforts that you're going to to do this do you, do you think they see that as important as maybe knocking the price down? I think so yeah I think people do recognize it's important. I don't think sustainability naturally makes the product more expensive for the consumer as well. You know we, we talked about sustainability in the large-scale projects which take huge investment but there's also just the efficiency piece around sustainability and that actually drives better profits and better growth and what we're then doing is reinvesting those profits into sustainability to make our product more environmentally friendly, better for the consumer um, and also at the same price point point. and I think at the moment the the consumers are more aware now than ever of where energy is coming from. And I think now, you know, people want to have that sustainable product in the house and people care a lot more than they did, say, 10, 15 years ago.
Thanks to Thomas Brewer, Lloyd Manship, and producer Melvin Rickerby for that insight into how Budweiser have adapted their business to help secure their clean energy future. It's incredible to see technology that's making energy supplies more secure and making the most of renewable energy. We're going to move outwards now, from a lone turbine in South Wales to the grid. All that vast infrastructure connecting the whole of the UK and beyond. As we scale up, the challenges multiply, and so do the solutions. Because there are many different ways in which the energy supplied to all of us is being made more resilient. And with me in London to explore this is Rebecca Sedler, Commercial Director at National Grid. Rebecca, let's talk a little bit about your role, your day-to-day. What does your job involve? So I work as part of the Interconnectors leadership team at National Grid. And, and no doubt we'll talk a bit more about what Interconnectors do. And But my team, as, as my role indicates, is at the commercial end. So I run the trading teams, the analysis teams, strategy, policy and regulation, and the the kind of commercial operations side of the business. So I love the whole spectrum of activity. How much of a priority does National Grid place on security of supply? Security of supply is a key priority for National Grid Group, both in the US and in the UK. That extends not just to system operation in the UK, to the transmission system in the UK and indeed the interconnection that I'm involved with with our European energy systems, but supporting the wider resilience, which is certainly being tested right now. I think for some time, many people in in the public, because particularly in the UK, where we've not had a system abundant with power cuts or resilience issues, have tended to focus much more on affordability and encouragingly on decarbonisation. And we've been reminded recently just how important resilience and security of supply is. And what is the approach you take when it comes to, you know, spreading the risk? Is it a case of a mix of technologies or a mix of projects? If I take that back to how we are looking at our assets in the interconnectors business going forward into this winter. Ultimately, it's it's ensuring that our assets are available, reliable, running when the energy system needs them to. And that's a combination of excellent operation, fantastic supply chain partners, and ensuring that we're being creative in our strategies to provide that asset resilience, such as how many spares we have, where we source those spares, the, even the communication channels between the people who operate on, uh, on and around sites and how well resourced the sites are in the event of an emergency occurrence. The amount of effort and creativity in shoring up our winter preparedness plans has been incredible. And we're going in knowing that we've done the best job we possibly could with a huge amount of engagement through our our business and our partners at these precarious times. And what about the advantages of this approach? Is it beneficial for uh, energy security, tackling climate change? Um, Is it beneficial for customers and their energy bills? So I think we've seen how economies of scale can drive down the costs of newer technologies such as wind. And we certainly see that with the huge build out of offshore wind. But we're also seeing the opportunities that demand flexibility can bring to um, consumers' bills. Because, of course, the cheapest amount of electricity is that that you don't use. And we're seeing increases in consumer interest in both load shifting. So, of course, there's opportunities with electric vehicles of when to charge, but there's all kinds of smart devices that are available on the market now. But when I look at this from an interconnectors perspective and we consider the increased intermittency that having renewables on a system brings to the overall system resilience, 
um, what interconnectors can also provide is a level of security that enables the UK to export surplus energy that's not needed when there's too much wind on the system. It's a, a very healthy level of output, but the demand isn't there. And equally can import electricity when perhaps the the wind isn't delivering that output, but the demand is high. So if you think forward to this flexible system that we are um, curating to achieve decarbonisation, I strongly believe there are going to be benefits from a consumer perspective, not just in cost, actually, and affordability, but I think there'll be benefits to overall lifestyle. I mean, when we have a look at the innovations that are coming on the market with regards to decarbonised homes, energy efficiency, clean transport, smart charging, all these things, and the technology that's being developed to enable consumers to participate and benefit, I think that the economic benefits and the lifestyle benefits will be vast. You mentioned earlier this one particular technology, interconnectors. I know a little bit about oil pipelines, gas pipelines, crossing the borders, and we share a lot of electricity between other countries, right? Is that what interconnectors do? Is that Am I right in saying that? Yes, you are. Essentially, an interconnector is a, a, a long wire, a subsea cable that connects uh, the UK energy system to a European energy system. And it provides and receives electricity according to the capacity of that wire in an incredibly flexible manner. So interconnectors are used worldwide. So that's definitely used in the US between different grids, between different regions in, 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 in the US, also used um, across Europe. So I guess contrasting to the gas interconnectors, as you call them, which are typically designed to flow one way, electricity interconnectors are highly flexible, can switch around hour to hour according to wherever the highest price energy system is. And they've driven huge amounts of consumer benefits and carbon savings to the UK and to the connected European countries. Can these interconnectors help us get towards a net zero? Interconnectors can absolutely support net zero ambitions. And indeed, our strategic focus in the interconnectors business right now is on what we're calling multi-purpose interconnectors. As we've discussed, we have these ambitions, not just in the UK, but across the whole of Europe, to develop and reach big targets with offshore wind. However, one of the challenges to developing all this offshore wind is connecting it into the system. So the proposal with multi-purpose interconnectors is that we don't just do these this point-to-point -point design, but the interconnectors also connect offshore via offshore platforms to the proposed offshore wind schemes. And so what this will do will be reduce the, the landing points and the coastal regions so that'll be better for coastal communities. It will reduce the overall amount of infrastructure. And of course, that will mean lower costs for consumers. So how much more of homegrown clean energy do you think is out there and ready to be secured? I think there's a huge potential for many different types of clean energy disciplines to play their part in a net zero system. So we've talked already about offshore wind. I believe there's a space for further onshore wind deployment. I think clean hydrogen has got a role. I think there'll be further storage development. And I think there's a role for nuclear zero carbon um, generation as well. The reality is, is the most affordable, most flexible, most quickly decarbonized system will be a factor of a mix of different technologies and deployments. And the achieving this is, well, it's the biggest challenge we've ever faced. And it's going to take all the talent of the um, energy sector to deliver it in a way that's affordable and resilient and has the consent of the public. And that will mean all, all these different technology types playing their part. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate 
this conversation. I appreciate talking to you, and I'm sure we'll interconnect soon. <laughs> I love it. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. And that was Rebecca Sedler, commercial director at National Grid. Now, of course, the wind doesn't always blow, and the sun doesn't always shine. This actually sounds like a great song title, but when they do, we need to capture and store that energy. But the big question is, how? And as we switch to a greater use of renewables, it's a question which will become way more important. We'll need tech which can capture the energy during periods of low demand, and then release it rapidly when it's needed. So the search is on for clean, green storage. One British company offering an amazing solution is Gravitricity. Charlie Blair is joining me, and he's the managing director at Gravitricity. Hey, Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Max. Before we press on, Charlie, what's your background, and yeah, how did you get into all of this? So I've worked in clean energy innovation for fifteen or twenty years, not as a sort of engineer that will tell you when that steel beam is going to break or what the fluid dynamics are going on in there, but on the overall system of how do we integrate new energy technologies into existing、uh, energy systems, into existing grids, and into society. Can you tell us a little bit about Gravitricity and what you what you do there? Yeah, so、um, this is energy storage that we do. We're not doing energy generation. We're effectively a battery, but not chemical. And it's in the name. We use gravity to store energy. So very simply, we lift a very heavy weight that increases the gravitational potential of that weight. We take electricity from the grid to do that. So we use an electrically driven winch. And as we lift that weight, we're increasing the energy stored. Effectively charging the battery, and then that weight can sit at the top of the shaft or anywhere we like. It can sit for as long as we want. There's no automatic discharge, and then we can lower that weight back down the shaft to discharge electricity back to the grid. So the the motors in the winches are being used as generators when the weight is on the way down, and obviously we have to do that in a very controlled way, and we need to design and develop the system such that. As much of that energy as possible, nearly all of that energy comes back out onto the grid when we want to deliver it back to the grid. So, really, it is, in all intents and purposes, it's a very large battery. But the core difficulty and problem with lithium batteries, particularly, but other chemistries as well, is a lifetime issue. A winch can cycle more or less indefinitely, and so the lifetime of our system is very, very much longer. And the durability, the ability to cycle multiple times a day, is much, much better than chemical alternatives. There's more of a need for it right now to have energy storage or ener- energy flexibility, like you said, right? Yes, not just more of a need, like existentially more of a need, and, and this largely comes from the intermittency of the generation on the grid. So in the past, generation was very flexible in itself. You could shovel more coal in, or you could pump more gas in. And that meant that could keep up with almost all of the the changes in demand and supply. And also, generators that come from burning fuel are large spinning masses. So that kind of coped with the second by second and microsecond variations on the grid as well. As we move away from burning fuels, we'll have a lot more intermittent wind and a lot more intermittent solar. We can do lots of things to predict when they come, but we. Can't generally speaking turn them on and turn them off as we choose. We need masses more flexibility, and as I keep saying, it, it's not fundamentally storage that we need. It's flexibility. We can do clever things with charging our cars at the right time of day, or running heat pumps at the right sorts of times of day, or, or air conditioning. But energy storage gives you that bi-directional flexibility. It gives you the flex up and the flex down, which is extremely valuable. What are some of the main challenges that you're you're facing right now? Do you have to dig really deep holes? Are there costs? Is it the location? Maybe it's the the geography. Yeah. So as you've identified, we need a a a deep hole in the ground in order to to build our system. So we've we've looked at the economics and the engineering of this.、Uh, we've built an above ground 250 kilowatt concept demonstrator last year here in Edinburgh to demonstrate and prove that the system works the way we think it does. But we believe for commercial systems, you need to use the geology of the Earth to hold the weight up. Equation means you need a lot of weight and a lot of drop.
to store a decent amount of energy. So, yeah, you need vertical underground shafts. Conveniently for us, there are a great many vertical shafts around the world, disused mine shafts. And our earliest market, earliest commercial market, will be existing mine shafts, probably in Central Europe, where coal mining is being closed down, it's being phased out proactively by the European Commission. And those will be our kind of early projects, equivalently early projects where there is a both a great demand for energy storage and existing deep mine shafts. There are opportunities, particularly in South Africa, across South America, across North America, USA, and all across Europe, and many, many parts of Asia and the Far East. So our early markets will be in existing mine shafts, but we've looked also at the economics of sinking new shafts, and, and bluntly we're are slightly surprised that it looks as feasible and viable as it does. So we absolutely plan to sink new shafts and deploy energy storage infrastructure assets exactly on, on particular locations where the grid needs them. And that is worth doing if grid owners who have assets that last 25 or 50 years realize that storage is part of that system. And storage assets need to last 25 or 50 years because that's what our system does that batteries can't do. Because lithium batteries can only last only a few years, right? Yeah, it depends how you operate them. It depends what quality of lithium there was in the first place. But you'll know from your phone, which typically most people charge up and down once a day, that's 365 cycles. And after a year, its performance has degraded quite significantly. Lithium batteries, you might get them lasting five or six years if you don't really operate the system. So our technology has the advantage of a significantly longer shelf life, but also a cycle life that is effectively endless compared to lithium batteries. I'm going to keep my eyes out for Gravitricity. Charlie Blair, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it and all the best. Uh, Well, very good to be here, Max. That was Charlie Blair, Managing Director at Gravitricity. We've found out how our electricity supplies are being secured. The Waze infrastructure is evolving to make things even more resilient. But I said at the beginning, we live in an uncertain world. And the most uncertain thing of all is the weather. Just look back over the last 12 months, storms, floods, temperature records being broken. And once they would have been called a once in a lifetime event. We're now seeing them much more often. So how are we adapting our power networks to withstand the severe weather, which is going to come? Joining me today is Natasha Deshan, who is Vice President of Electric Asset Management Engineering at National Grid. That's a mouthful. Natasha, it's great to meet you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Natasha, can you tell me a little bit about your job and what it involves? Yeah, sure. So I would say my job centers really around three major responsibilities. The first part is managing our assets, the things like our substation equipment, our distribution lines, and our transmission lines. The second part, I would say, is planning our system. Where do we need to increase the capacity to push more electricity through the equipment? And then the third big piece is really the engineering and the design. What will the new equipment be? What will it be rated for electricity? And then also the structural design of our poles and our foundations, creating the drawings that we can then hand to our field crews to go build. So let's talk about weather. Um, it's probably one of our favorite topics here in the UK. We always talk about the weather. Um, and when we look over the last 12 months or so, there's been severe weather. So what's really standing out for you at this very moment? Yeah, I think to me, simply just the frequency of the events. What used to really be a one-off is more of the norm. And it it just seems like every week on the news, you hear of a hurricane or a wildfire. And soon we'll be transitioning to that season where it'll be northeasters and ice storms. But is is it because we have access to knowing what's happening on the other side of the world? Or are things really just picking up at an incredible rate? I think visibility is a piece of it, but I think we're definitely seeing from the facts and the trends that we are seeing more events happening and that we are seeing the extreme nature of them is growing and it's affecting more people over larger areas. So the U.S. has always seen weather extremes. I remember growing up in Connecticut, uh, we'd have 
great weather. We we have seasons. And then over the last few years, every time I go back home and I see, you know, my family, snow is getting higher. The temperature is rising. It's getting really hot and muggy. There's mosquitoes everywhere. So there's extreme weather conditions happening across the U.S. And let's talk about what we can do about withstanding this. Definitely. I think that, you know, to some extent, we've always had safety codes. They help us decide what we're going to design to for wind speeds and ice loads. Uh, we've always had things like inspection and maintenance programs to help us to identify the assets that need to be replaced before they fail. But recently, we've really been doing a lot in the last five to 10 years around things like hardening our distribution system. So using larger diameter wood poles that are stronger. We've also on our transmission system, we've transitioned to the use of steel poles for everything that's 115 kilovolts and higher. We've also done things around increasing our investment in our vegetation management program. So this is a critical piece to our reliability and resiliency of our system is that vegetation management and the pruning of that vegetation. Finally, things like automation of our grid so that we can respond quickly after an event happens. You mentioned ice, ice loads? Yeah, sure. So ice loads is the amount of ice thickness that actually builds up onto the conductor. So we are looking to design for that extra weight that that conductor carries and transfers onto the poles that support that wire. So, so we're looking at the changes of that ice. Interestingly, what we found is, uh, I mentioned that we designed today to our National Electric Safety Code. Ice is the one, the one aspect that we at National Grid have decided to design above and beyond the code. So we designed today for an inch and a half, for example, of ice where the code might say an inch. So what we found through some of these studies is that we think from the ice standpoint, we may actually be designing adequately today. But for example, the wind speeds is another consideration that we have to have when we design. And in some areas where we may be designing for 90 or 100 mile per hour winds, we may see winds that wind gusts that exceed 120 miles per hour in the future. And so those are some of the considerations that we'll need to keep in mind when we think about the structures that we put in in the future. But are you confident that the network is robust enough to withstand real extreme weather conditions? I mean, to really withstand every event entirely, you'd really have to do something like underground the entire network, which just isn't economically feasible. But what we can do is really harden that system to reduce the physical damage that occurs, and then also invest in technologies that help us to minimize the customer's impact when the damage does occur. You know, part of it is, is trying to prevent the damage and it's hardening the system. But the second part is knowing that there are going to be impacts. And so how do we respond and minimize the impacts to our customers? And so one of the big focus areas going forward for us is automation. So one of our programs is called FLIZZER, which stands for Fault Location, Isolation, and Service Restoration, which I know is a big mouthful of words. Sounds like a, an ice cream from uh, some Dairy Queen or something. <laughs> yes, a delicious one. <laughs> uh, I, what it means, though, is we actually tie some of our distribution feeders together so that they become more of a loop instead of kind of straight line feeders. And then when a fault happens, so something like a tree comes down on the wire, some of our equipment, which is reclosers, that are located on each side of that fault open up and they isolate that fault. And then what we can do is restore electricity to the customers that are outside of that isolated section. So it minimizes the number of customers who are impacted. And then it also narrows in on where that fault is so our field crews can repair that quicker. So I think automation is also just a, a huge component of the future when we think about resiliency. So this must be an area where you need lots of expertise. There's people who are experienced in this. Maybe you need a lot of technology. Are you working with a lot of people like the organizations? Are, is there, what, what's your day-to-day -day look like? Yeah, definitely. First off, we're teaming up with a lot of other utilities. So in New York, we're actually working on a climate vulnerability assessment and action plan and that we're doing with other New York utilities. We've also partnered with a consultant, AROP, to help us build a climate risk tool. So as part of that tool, we're looking at nine different weather hazards, things like extreme heat, extreme cold, coastal and inland flooding. And we're looking at some of those hazards using different climate scenarios and projecting out in the future all the way to 2070. 
We've also been partnering with different universities. So we partnered with MIT and we did a study specific to our transmission system going out to 2040 and really focused on the wind speeds and the ice loads that our transmission structures will see in the future. And obviously just working with all the utilities in the industry and working groups like the IEEE. You mentioned climate risk tool. I'm I'm fascinated by this. What what does this mean? Can you describe it a little bit uh, more for everyone who's listening? Yeah. So the the tool itself it looks at these different hazards. Like I said, using maybe extreme heat as an example, it takes um, what where we are today on how many days do we see, for example, over 95 degrees, and then it projects out based on different climate scenarios of different temperature changes what would that number of days, how would that change in the future during 20, you know, 2040, 2050, 2070? How would that increase? And it actually plots it out on a, on a map so you can see the certain areas where we really see the biggest shifts um, in those hazards. And it does that with, with uh, you know, eight or nine different hazards. And then in terms of getting involved, definitely. On the New York side, I mentioned that we were doing that climate vulnerability assessment. And part of that uh, order did require us to work with our local communities. So we're setting up meetings with local towns and and those who really see firsthand what the impacts are to events and and they can really provide lots of input on on you know maybe things that the tool doesn't show or, or the things that they really experience so we can build that into our action plan. The information within this risk tool, those are new pieces of information that have really helped us to start looking at not just the historical and the current trends, but really what is that future going to look like in 2070? A lot of our assets are are built and installed and stay up for, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 years. We have assets in the New York that were installed in 1906 that are still standing today. So we really need to be designing out for that future next 100 years. So I think having that asset, that data, is really what I look most forward to in terms of being able to use that to change some of the way that we're designing things today. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Natasha Deshan, Vice President of Electric Asset Management Engineering at National Grid. It's been fascinating to see the extraordinary work underway to protect the resilience of our electricity supplies. And if you'd like to find out more about how clean and green energy is a part of our own world right now, you can follow National Grid on social media or visit nationalgrid.com. Next month, I'll be finding out all the ways we're moving away from fossil fuels and making our energy supply fit for the future. Make sure you follow and subscribe to the podcast. Don't miss it. See you then.